Would you please join me in reciting the Shema, which our Lord Jesus would have recited every day of his life. Israel. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Please remain standing for the reading of the scripture this morning. is from Mark chapter 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick up some hands, heads of grain and rub them together in their hands. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never re- read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill life? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their hardened hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Go back with me, if you will, to my childhood. I am the middle child of three boys, and any of you, if you are a parent to multiple boys, you know the chaos that that usually brings in a household. A quick show of hands, how many of y'all are the middle child in your family? I know one middle child right here, and some back there. David Reed, a troublemaker back there. There is this reality, at least For the middle children, I know that we grow up in the midst of a group of people and we continually and very naturally will keep an eye on that group. So when I was even a young child, you could ask me where people in the family were and I would know where they were. I would know what soccer practice Mike had or what piano lesson Chris was at or what event my parents were going to that night. I naturally grew up in the middle and learned how people worked and where they were and what this was like. But as I grew up further and further, I discovered little by little that it wasn't just paying attention to what they were doing or how they were spending their time or what was going on their schedule. I started to observe things about my brothers and I started to learn wonderful things for a young child to know, like what really drives your brothers nuts? I quickly found from a young age that when I observed people, I started to discover these giant buttons which you could push to elicit certain responses you wanted. And this was a wonderful thing for a young boy to discover, especially about his brothers and especially about his older brother 
that was bigger than him. So I could push my older brother. I could bring up little things and I could needle him. And when I was young, it started with actual physical needling. You know, you poke someone right there in the back seat of your station wagon and they squirm and they get so mad until they finally hit you. And that's when your parents discover that something's gone on. And then the older brother gets punished and you get away scot-free. And then as I got older, I realized it wasn't really appropriate to be poking them. But I knew what triggered them. I knew what things I could bring up to make them really frustrated. And I knew what topics. And I even got to the point where I could see these topics coming and I could bring them up with other members of the family and then they would bring up the story. So I looked even more innocent than before. And then the next thing you know, my mom's bringing up some story that gets my older brother really frustrated and I sit there quietly eating my food and watching the show and just loving every minute of it. Are you with me, General? Are we, we still on the same page? He's laughing and, and raising his finger. I continue to hang out with David. I don't think he's dropped this activity yet in his life. Well, as I got older, I started to think about this and wonder why I had this ability and my brothers didn't. Because we could poke. I could poke them and they weren't so good at it. And then we were on this trip with my family and I noticed my dad bring up something to his baby sister. And it was as if he had taken a verbal grenade and pulled the pin out and lobbed it into the middle of the room. And then with a wry smile, quietly walked out as he saw the whole thing blow up. And it worked every time. As he said later, I taught her everything she knows. We grow up with this reality, knowing the people around us so well, and we can pick and choose how we interact with them. How many of y'all watched the World Series over the last few months? Playoff baseball is fantastic every year, but this year is especially fantastic as the Astros won their first World Series. Watching those pitching duels go, Verlander and Kershaw, some of the greats of the game, and watching how they design the batting, the interaction with the batter. They're, they're setting up the batter for certain things. They're placing the pitches in certain parts of the plate to draw the batter in. They're giving them expectations. They're setting for their mind for what's coming. It could be fastball, 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 and then a slower pitch. So they're expecting a fastball. And as baseball determines it, they swing in the dirt they get to the point where they're almost working the pitcher over and they can control what the pitcher is expecting and give them something unexpected. There's this wonderful scene in a baseball movie entitled Field of Dreams where they pick up this young rookie player, Moonlight Graham, Archibald Graham. His one dream in life was to get a hit in the big leagues. And so they pick him up and they take him to this field and he's playing with all these greats. And one of the things he said is, I always wanted to look, stare down a pitcher and wink at him as if to let him know I knew something he didn't know. So he gets in this game with all these salty veterans. He's this skinny kid. He leans into the batter's box and he looks at the pitcher and he winks at him. And the pitcher gets really irate and he throws a ball right at his face and the kid falls to the ground. And the catcher says, hey, what are, you, what are you throwing at the kid for? And he says, he winked at me. 
And the catcher says, don't wink at him, kid, unless you want to get your head taken off. Well, the kid leans in and winks again, and he throws right at his head. And so Shoeless Joe calls him over, and he says, all right, he doesn't want to load the bases. So where do you think he's going to throw it? He said, well, he's had two at my ear, so he's probably going to throw it low and away. And Shoeless Joe says, yeah, low and away. Look for low and away. So he's been coming up and in, and he's going to go low and away. So he's got to lean in to get that pitch. And as the kid's walking back to the plate, Shoeless Joe says, but don't don't forget to watch out for in your ear. The pitcher's setting this whole thing up, and the kid gets low and away, and he hits a pot fly, and it's an RBI, and he lives into his dream, and it's all fulfilled. This pitching duel that we saw in the World Series with Verlander's Kershaw is much like what's going on in our passage today. We see a continuation of Jesus and the Pharisees squaring off with one another and even, I would say, orchestrating situations, as the scripture says, to catch us in things. The Pharisees want to design things to catch Jesus in breaking the law. And I would even go as far as to say that Jesus is setting up things to catch the Pharisees in their misunderstandings of who he is and what the law actually means. This needs a little background setup. If we go back earlier in Mark chapter 2, we find three situations that precede our passage this morning where Jesus is setting up the Pharisees in ways where he's revealing to them things about who he is and what his law actually means. In the beginning of Mark chapter 2, we have where Jesus is in a crowded house and these men tear open the roof. And you remember they lower a paralytic in and, and Jesus says, Son, your, heel, your, sons are, your sins are forgiven. And all these Pharisees are standing around thinking, who is this person to say your sins are forgiven? And so Jesus says, well, in order to show that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I'll show you this. And he says, man, you know, he says, young man, take up your mat and walk. And the man's healed. And they're all amazed, and the Pharisees are irate. He's claiming to be the Messiah, and they don't really think this is the case. The next situation in Mark chapter 2, Jesus goes to dine with tax collectors, and the Pharisees say, who is this man who dines with tax collectors? Sinners, making him ritually unclean. And as we know from David's teaching, sitting with someone at the table is a sign of respect and honor for who they are and how they live their lives. And Jesus says, the Son of Man does not come to heal the righteous, but those who need healing, those who are unclean. And he's in a sense saying to them, I'm not coming for you, I'm coming for these people. And again, the insiders are cast as outcasts, and we see a different side of God. And then finally, before this passage, the fasting. The Pharisees say, who, what's the deal with with Jesus and his followers, John's disciples are always fasting, but Jesus' disciples never are. And Jesus again identifies himself with God and says, when the bridegroom is here, you celebrate. You celebrate. Or as, as the message translation says, why are John's disciples always fasting, Jesus, when your disciples are always partying? There is this reality where Jesus is continuing to reveal himself to us 
and the Pharisees in ways that throw off who they think he is. He's bringing these things to mind, and it continues in our scripture this morning with the Sabbath. First, that there is this reality that there are exceptions to the rules. And this is hard for the Pharisees and even for us. We want a clear-cut, hard line. This will always work and this will always apply. And Jesus says, do you remember David when he was running from Saul and his men were on the run and they stopped in to get the consecrated bread? And not only David himself ate the bread, but he gave it to his men. You see, he's using their very scriptures to trump their position and to bring up a point where they know they're now off. He's using the authority they're using to trump him, to trump them right back. And they have to start holding the scriptures a little looser. 613 commandments. There's going to be some situations where we can't apply everyone just so. And this was part of the debate in Jesus' day. What work was, was a specific debate that had been going on for 30 years. But even bigger than that, what is the greatest commandment? Well, everyone agreed in that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which we recite every day. But the second commandment was up for debate. Hillel and Shammai, as David talks about, two great rabbis, two camps of thought who are debating this. Shammai would say the second commandment is to be holy therefore as your heavenly father is holy and Hillel would say the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor Jesus in a sense sides with those following Hillel and raises the reality that on the Sabbath we are to love those around us Hillel would go on to, sh- to say the two greatest commandments love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind your Strength, love your neighbor as yourself, and everything else is just commentary. There is this reality that Jesus brings to us in this situation where we start to see that he is not just about the rules. He is about the relationship. As Dan reminded the students this morning, we have a mind to know things, and a heart to confirm those things. Our senior pastor, David Magnitsky, reminds us that we cannot understand the law of God without understanding the heart of the God behind that law. And Jesus starts to unpack these realities for the Pharisees and us as he brings up a few deep realities of who he is. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's identifying himself again with God, which infuriates the Pharisees. But again, it is a reminder of who he is. He also says in his scripture, Sabbath is for the man, not man for the Sabbath. The Pharisees had gotten this out of order where they're starting to serve the rule itself, and not see the gift of the rule and how it gave life to man. Remember in our creation narrative that we reviewed a few weeks ago, Sabbath is actually the first full day of life after man and women are created on the sixth day. 
It is the anchor of creation and the core to our identity that we are first and foremost, above all, called to rest in God. And then finally, Jesus reminds them with this question, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Is it to give life or to kill? And as we know from the scriptures, they remain silent as if to say, we will not even engage you in this reality. See, God comes to us in those places that we do not understand. He comes to us in the places of friction and confusion. It's no coincidence that so oftentimes the parts of our lives where we have difficulty trusting God are the parts of our lives where God comes to us and invites us to trust him. This is the stretch that's, re- that's required. This is the growth that God invites us to. These are the points where God knows we need him the most. The points where we have not yet fully discovered who he is and the truth of what he invites us to do. And just like with the Pharisees, he comes to us this morning knowing those places Just like that picture in the World Series, just like me and my dad with our siblings, God knows those little places where we're just a little off on who he is. Where we forget that it's more, we forget the reality of God's heart and think it's more about the rules than about the heart. We forget the reality that God is Lord of all and sometimes get lost in the minutia of trying to get it right. And most of all, we forget that it's about loving God and loving our neighbor, and the rest is just commentary. Mark raises these things in this situation, in this series of five instances culminating in the Sabbath, in this morning scripture, to reveal who Jesus is and remind the Pharisees and us of this reality. But it's ironic because he is bringing up this importance of Sabbath, the day of giving life. And the Pharisees are responding and saying, no, you're breaking the rule. And then they go off and plot to kill him. N.T. Wright reminds us that technically Jesus does not even break the laws of the Sabbath. It's his disciples that are picking the grain. And then later all he does is ask for man to stretch out his hand, and he proclaims words over him. So Jesus has done nothing to break the law, and the Pharisees retaliate to plan his own downfall and death. Irony at its best. I would be remiss not to bring up the tragedy of this past week. I found it ironic myself that as we come together on this Sabbath day to celebrate worship together, we study a scripture where God himself stands with the importance of the Sabbath law. And when he stands in that place, his enemies plot to kill him. We stand with this community together to recognize that part of what we do and are called to do is to remember these rhythms of our life. To remember that God is Lord of all and he has set apart things for rest and time, but also remember those who have fallen this week. 
We pray for their families, for those who help with the relief effort, and for our society as these tragedies seem to be coming more and more frequently. But in this place of confusion and worry and stretch, I encourage you to hear the reminders in our passage this morning of Jesus reminding us who he is as the Son of Man, Lord of the Sabbath, who invites us together to worship him in Sabbath rest. I was reminded this week that for thousands of years, for most people, practicing our faith meant to risk their very lives, persecution and even death. And in some places of our world, this is still a reality. This morning, I am grateful for the freedoms that our country affords us to come together and worship And remember not just who God is, but who he invites us to be with him. Would you now join me in a time of prayer followed by a moment of silence for those who have lost their lives this week. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ways that you know us so intimately and personally. And you do not leave us as we are. And you come to us in courage and boldness. To reveal the fullness of who you are and the life that you invite us to. We pray for Sutherland and for those who have lost their lives. We pray for their families as they mourn and their community as they try and reconnect and heal. And Father, we thank you for the ways that you come to them and continue to come to us with your love and your mercy and your grace. Lord, thank you for the gift of Sabbath as a recognition that you are God and we are not. And we are safe resting in your loving arms. We thank you and honor you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.